Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. I couldn't help as I sat uh, listening. Uh, thinking what a horrible thing it would be to have uh, this happen in your family and, and to be family sitting there and hoping and wanting uh, something for your son. And I thought about, a, I think it was 60 minutes, I haven't thought about it for a long time, as a law enforcement officer whose son committed murder. Never done anything else, but he committed murder. And, and he took his son down and they made a confession and his son went to prison. He resigned from law enforcement and he visited his son every day that he could. And it was uh, a very emotional thing for me to watch, to watch somebody with that much integrity to say, I'm going to have my son go down and say what he did and take the consequences. And at the end of all this, if I say it again or I don't say it again, what I'm asking for is, is uh, to deny the request to allow this matter to go to parole in 2017 um, and initially I say that because I believe that there's been a benefit received already from the parole board recently uh, on the basis of much of what you've heard today. But I'm also asking you to give some consideration to a few things. When there was reference to Mr. Allian and his effort and uh, an indication that perhaps uh, counsel would have gone to trial, well, there, there could be reasons. I was listening and I thought, you know, if I have a client and my client is going to go in and plead, there's a benefit to that, even if it's an Alfred plea. He's coming in. He's not going to put the family through it, everybody through it. He's going to plead. There's a benefit there. And if you look in the pre-sentence investigation, I, I, could, I started looking at it and I said, you know, he is represented within the pre-sentence investigative report as having a, a few things that would be, uh, I think, evoke sympathy that if I played him, I could use to my advantage as a defense attorney. One would be there's a discrepancy between him and the person who was killed. There's an age difference there. There's an influence there. I would want to take advantage of that. I would want to say this 33-year-old from karate class who knew he had an interest in guns, and I would try to develop that and say it was, that was a, a, an unhealthy relationship and an unfair one. But you don't get that so much if you go to trial. You get that better if you plead. I would, I would submit that there are other benefits. Um, you saw the references in the pre-sentence investigation to the, the quid pro quo for the sexual acts for the weapons. That is something that I think anybody would say, I have some, I have, uh, some strong feelings about that. A 16-year-old uh, or a 15-year-old, a 33-year-old, a boy, that's going on. But you see a chink in the armor a little bit also. You see a reference to the, to the uh, applicant today, but you see a reference in here where he says, you know, um, we went up and killed a man and buried him up on Peavine. And he retracted that. And he retracted it and he said, you know, I made that up. I just thought it made me look better. And keep that in mind 
when you accept everything, or, or at least you, you hear his version. I mean, there is some indication here that he wants to, to paint the best picture for himself. I understand that, but I think it should be something that's acknowledged. So he's, he takes Eric, who we heard some, I, I appreciate the, the effort to say some uh, um, at least decent things about today. But he says, Eric told me, uh, or Eric and I killed somebody and buried him, but I didn't do that. Did you see the latest psyche, uh, psychological report, the one where he has indicated that he is not overtly psycho, uh, I had to, had to write it down, psychopathology. He's, he's not overt uh, with psychopathology. Well, I, I don't, I'm not quite so sure what that means. Um, but it, it certainly is about the only reference we have to the real question is, are you comfortable putting him back on the street? Have the issues that led to him going to that location and killing someone been addressed? And I would say this is not an adequate addressing of those questions. But within there, look at the, at the note right below, interviewer's note. During the interview, Mr. Reed reports he, quote, made up the sex stuff about the victim and himself to make the case look better for him as a victim of molestation. Well, that's another chink. And I don't like to see somebody that young go to prison. But I, I think it's time to be candid. What makes more sense? I'm going to go over there and just talk to him and we'll work this out. Or I think that I have been threatened and my family has been threatened and as he said I'm going to man up and take care of it and he goes over there and he shoots him. I would submit that's exactly what he did with premeditation. It was a first degree murder case. I'm looking at the pre-sentence investigation. Mr. Reed said among other things, my own anger overcame me. Then he demonstrated how he walked forward while the victim was tying his shoes on the couch, pulled the 45 pistol from approximately two and a half feet away and shot the victim. Well, that's what he did, and that's what he went there to do. He couldn't have picked a phone up and said, let's resolve this thing about the guns. Your guns are over at Bob's house or Ted's house. Go get your guns. He couldn't have found some other way to do this. No, he gave you a clue when he said, I wanted to take care of it. Well, he did, you know, and some things are just too big to not be held responsible for and, in essence, do your time. You know, I, I know he was young then, but, you know, his behavior really isn't that much different than somebody who was older. He tried to avoid the consequences. He got rid of the gun. There was bragging. I, uh, you know, I blew him away. Well, it is, I think, of merit that he has done the things that he has referred to. I give him credit for that. I am very much impressed that he has the support of his family. But I would submit, as I, as I said at the beginning, that he has received a substantial benefit already from the parole board, and that he simply. Uh, needs to be uh, have the request that he makes today denied and he can go to the parole board in two, 2017. I would like to leave you with one thing because it's hard not to be almost overwhelmed when you look at, at the family and the impact 
Very seldom does a mother go to the murder scene, but the mother of Eric did. The mother expressed the horror of viewing the murder scene and stated that she had cleaned the victim's blood, saw his handprints, and viewed the victim's body subsequent to autopsy, but before being readied for funeral. In correspondence with the division, the victim's mother informed that she felt that not only did the defendant kill the victim, but her as well. Tragedy all around, but not time for the relief requested to be granted. Mr. Hilzer, I have a question before you depart the rostrum. Did the retraction of the um, assertion with regard to the sexual activity occur for the first time during the psychological review? Was that known at the time of sentencing? In other words, Your Honor, I, I defer to Mr. Cornell. I could not find it. I didn't find it in the pre-sentence investigation. I did find the retraction of the murder and the burying of the body, but not that. The only retraction I saw was in this latest psychological evaluation where it was added as a note because I think it was recognized how important it was. I just don't know. I, I looked, but I couldn't find it. Any other questions from board members? Thank you, Mr. Hilton. Thank you. Uh, Governor, if I may, <clears throat> Mr. Briefly, Reed did Mr. retract that prior to sentencing. Um, as I indicated in my first letter, uh, part of my problem in describing this case to you is that from the mouth of a teenage boy, a lot of things were said that weren't true. And, and as an officer of the court, I try to look at this case. Obviously, I'm his advocate, but also try to relate to you the facts as, as I believe them to be true based on my whole review of the entire file. And this one, this case was difficult in that regard. And, and of course, making it more difficult is we don't have a, a, a judicial findings of fact because we never got there. Um, my understanding of the facts, however, were, however, that Master Reed did contact Mr. Seeger in a mediation mode, if you will, to attempt to uh, return the guns, and that's when the threats began from the adult. I mean, I do believe those are the facts, or part Mr. of the facts. Cornell, how do you know the retraction occurred before sentencing? Um, it's my understanding that Mr. Reed retracted it with uh, the department. I mean, I don't believe uh, when, when he was interviewed. I mean, how do I personally know? I don't know. I, I wasn't there. But because that was the first time, or that was the only reference I saw with regard to a retraction was at the psych during the psychological review, which was conducted on September 22nd of 2011. Well, I can tell you, in, in when I first took this case uh, and spoke with Mr. Reed, he had retracted it to me then, but I'm informed and believe that he had retracted it before that. I mean, I don't think there's any question that there was an inappropriate relationship between Eric Seeger and Robert Reed that shouldn't have been, and the adult should have been the one to step up and, and, and correct that. But I'm also convinced it was not sexual in nature. I think the question is, at least for me, that uh, that was something that was contemplated or used during this negotiation between the prosecution and the defense. Well, but, if he was but molested, what was he? Certainly would have got a better deal. Yeah. I mean, was he? Were he molested or not? I mean, let's. let's you, you, 
Just tell us what it is. Let's have it. I mean, if you take Helzer's version, it's first-degree murder. If I take your version, Mr. Carnell, it's maybe voluntary manslaughter, second degree. I feel like I'm sitting on a jury here. I felt like you made an opening statement, and then he made uh, his final argument. My God. Mr. Reed, were you molested? No, sir. Um, can I reiterate on that a uh, little sure. bit for you, sir? Um, if you, if I'm getting this correctly, this is based upon the Parnes Board report, correct? Of uh, why it was brought? Is, is that what's happening on that? No, I, I think I understand your question, Mr. Reed. I'm reading the confidential Pardons Board psychological review that was okay, where you, yes. wherein you were evaluated on September 22nd, 2011. It's signed by Marianne Chabot Fence, MA, psychologist to Mental Health and Programs, Northern Nevada Correction Center. Okay, yes, Your Honor. Um, Ms. Fence brought that up um, because she had a copy of my pre-sentence investigation report. Uh, somewhere in the PSI, it mentions um, early upon when I was in the county jail that um, I told the uh, uh, authorities and plus my uh, attorney back then that, um, uh, that Eric did sexual things to me. And um, again, it was what was going on was while I was in the county jail, a lot of people were always telling me, hey, you should do this, you should do that. And uh, again, I was just listening to all these people, these dudes just coming in going, hey, here's uh, you need to do this if you want to help your situation. Even though I felt just way out of the box on it, all these guys were just coming to me, you should tell them this, you should tell them that. And so I did. You know, I ran with it, and I uh, made a lot of that up. And then later down the road, uh, to my attorneys, uh, uh, you know, I retracted, and, you know, I said, listen, I can't, you know what, no matter how this happens, I can't, I can't do that. You know what I mean? Regardless of the, the circumstances that led up to everything that happened that night, I just can't do that. I'm not going to, you know, smut this individual up. Um, I would like to make a, a statement that Mr. Helzer brought up. Um, he said in there that um, I told the police that me and him, me and Eric, killed somebody and uh, buried him on Peavine. Again, that was another statement I made, but there, there's a difference in that one. Um, when I told the Ar uh, Reno Police Department about that, um, it was something that Eric said to me. He said that, you know, and this was way before the incident ever happened, way before the threats over the phone or the threats towards my face. This was during the time that I knew him. And he used to just brag about how nobody crossed him, nobody messed with him, uh, and, you know, that he's, he's buried somebody on Peavine. So now with all this in my head at the time, you know, and I think everything's starting to come in, you know, the walls are starting to come in on me, and I'm, these people always telling me, you know, oh, you're screwed, you're done. You know, I mean, you need to do whatever you can, even if that means lying, you know, to help your situation. And, God, I was just, I was stupid, you know. I mean, I would entertain it and listen to this crap. And, uh so I told the police that, and I said, well, 
Yeah, he Eric mentioned one time that uh, he buried. Now that is a factual thing that he told me. Um, did I ever go up there and uh, what I told the cops that wasn't part of that? I never said that I was with them uh, and did something and put them up there. It was uh, a statement that Eric made to me. I can't really give you a full time date, maybe six months, eight months before the incident. Um, and I just, it, it popped in my head at the time and I, you know, I tried to run with it. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was stupid. You know, I, and I made a lot of just bad decisions back then. And, you know, I just wasn't thinking right. You know, I was scared. You know, I have all these guys, these older guys telling me, man, you should be doing this, filling my head with a bunch of crap. You Thank know? you, Mr. Reed. And, uh, Chief Justice. I just have a question. You said you told your attorney that the allegations of sexual behavior between you and the victim in this case, you weren't going to sustain them. You weren't going to go for, forward with them. Which attorney, at what time, before sentencing, after sentencing, or just oh. a couple of months ago? No, it was way before sentencing. It was um, uh, when that originally came out, um, it was Jack Allen was my attorney then. So pre-sentencing. So when you yes. went in before a judge and they were going to impose a sentence, that was no longer um, a, a mitigating circumstance of any sort that was used in your favor. Uh, that's correct. Any other questions? Is there anyone else here would like to present with regard to this matter? Um, Your Honor, uh, I talked to the family uh, and Caitlin Black uh, would like to speak, and I think she might be of some benefit to the board, so I'll, I'll ask her to do so. Good afternoon, Governor Sandoval and esteemed board members. As you know, I'm Caitlin Black. I'm Robert's niece. Um, I'm the same age as my uncle was when he was sentenced to two life terms in prison. We have had very different lives. The same thoughts and emotions have been through our minds. On February 25th, 2010, I attempted to take my life. Through my own process of rehab, Robert offered me his own experiences and his listening ear. He helped me to get through my own journey of finding it in myself to go on with life by being there when I needed someone to talk to. He understands on a deeper level than most. Without the support of Robert, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. My uncle has done the best with the situation he is in and his heart inspired me to do the same. He is one of my biggest inspirations. Any questions? Thank you very much. Thank you. My neighbor don't. Um, I, I hope this isn't unduly time-consuming, but Kathy Fricky, who's Robert's mother, would like to say a few words, and I've asked her to keep it to two minutes or less. Yeah. Ms. Fricky.
I'm sorry. <laughs> I wasn't planning on talking today. Um, I don't normally do things like this. Um, I'm Kathy Fricky. I'm Robert's mother. Um, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about a mother, kind of a mother's reaction to another mother. Um, in the last year, 17 years, um, it's been difficult for me. And um, I never talked to Virginia after the hearing. Um, I tried to go up and talk to her after the sentencing, and I was kind of um, diverted from her. I just wanted to tell her how much I was sorry, and I never got a chance to do that. Um, and I've thought about um, her often and her family and um, Robert knew Virginia really well um, she spoke up at the hearing I think that was brought up she spoke up at the sentencing and said that she wanted they she, they were asked when you know they were talking to the victim's family and that she would like for Robert to have an opportunity to um, you know that you know if he redeemed you know if he you know, what word do I want? Re anyway, if he made himself better, I don't know what the word I want, um, that she would like to see him one day be able to be out and um, that it wouldn't ruin his life. And um, Robert knew her pretty well, too, because um, he went once um, in the summer with Eric down to her house to, they built the fence, I guess the fence was broke or something, and he helped him build it. And I've talked to Robert, of course, over the years. Um, I'm the one that sees him the most, and um, he's expressed over and over his remorse and, you know, how sorry he is that there's no way that he can change what happened that day. He's, you know, just, you know, you know, it just, it's just something, you know, that you can say you're sorry for, but, you know, but um, and what else um i just want you guys i just want you to know that i am very proud of robert i'm very proud to call him my son and i'm proud of everything he's done um to me it's amazing under the circumstances that he had to mature in that um he's done as well as he is doing um and um if he's, when he's lucky enough, or not lucky enough, or when he has the opportunity, if he does, um, to get parole or pardon at some time, um, he'll be staying with me, and um, I, I will be doing everything that I can to, you know, help him with his transition from prison life to, you know, being out in the world and being a contributing member to society. And I know that he will be. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Frick. Mr. Cornell, I, I do want to follow up on this issue. Um, I'm looking at the pre-sentence report, page 8. Pre-sentence investigation dated June 22nd, 1995, and at page six, and at page eight, 
says, Mr. Reed also admitted lying about the bodies buried on Peabine Mountain saying, quote, I was thinking about getting myself out of it, close quote. The defendant advised that he has never told anyone about masturbating the victim except his attorneys and informed that he was embarrassed saying, quote, in the past I was afraid to tell the truth. And there's also reference at page six saying, um, talking about Mr. Reed saying that he had done the same conduct in return, quote, a few hand jobs were worth an AR-15. There's nothing in the pre-sentence report retracting those statements. And in fact, that was the statement within the pre-sentence report. I'm seeing that statement, yes. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that, but yep, that's there. Which makes his statement to me completely false. Um, as far as telling his attorneys that that didn't happen, or my question was very straightforward: was the alleged sexual conduct used in any way in his sentencing? in an effort to mitigate the real circumstances? Well, what I can say is the stipulated sentence called for 10 to life. It, it, at that point, it was basically irrelevant, but and, and certainly Mr. Allen didn't argue it at sentencing. In fact, as you see from the sentencing transcript, it's extremely short. Uh, we have a stipulated sentencing. Here it is. Bang. That's it. So I don't know what else to say about that. Any further questions from board members? Um, is there a motion? Yes, Governor. Uh, <clears throat> I offered this case to the board because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I felt like uh, this was to me an unusual example of an inmate who had made extraordinary progress and had succeeded notwithstanding the fact that they entered the prison system at 16 years old. Uh, I'm not a bit surprised that a 16-year-old facing these charges would uh, present a number of lies and misstatements to any number of people, perhaps even including his lawyer, <clears throat> in order to avoid them the circumstances that he was facing, but I note that uh, the transcript of the sentencing hearing doesn't contain any argument by counsel uh, seeking uh, any uh, reduction in sentencing as a result of any sexual contact between Mr. Seeger and himself. Uh, that reference, of course, is in the pre-sentence report. I don't know that it would have influenced Judge Mills Lane because I think Judge Lane what the sentencing transcript reveals to me, having read lots of Judge Lane's transcript, came his successor judge, uh, is I think he was focused on the words of the victim's mother. And if you notice, the victim's mother, as Justice Perigary pointed out, uh, was specifically asked whether she sh would prefer life without or life with. And her answer, I think, is revealing. If he operates under the appropriate guidelines, he should get parole. The question, I think, in front of the board is when. Uh, he's scheduled to come before the board in 2017. 
if it occurs that, if it takes that long, <clears throat> uh, then he will have served um, 22 years. This is another example of a case in which uh, the sentences by statute were 10 to life. Uh, he didn't get his first uh, parole until after having served 12 years. Uh, I think that it is appropriate for this board to recognize uh, the accomplishments that he has made. My suggestion to the board was going to be to amend the sentence uh, to five to life on the uh, deadly weapon, which would make him eligible for parole in September of 2012. He still would have to demonstrate uh, that he could accomplish that. Uh, it would also show that he would have served 17 of the 20 years in prison uh, if he made the board. Uh, but I think that it is a recognition of his efforts, um, and it also, um, frankly, uh, is an example of a successful effort on the part of the prison to rehabilitate a juvenile. I think it also is another example of a case where a juvenile who is in our prison system has succeeded. So my motion is to amend the uh, count two to five to life from ten to life, which governor would make him eligible for parole on September 1st, 2012. You've heard uh, Justice Hardesty's motion. Is there a second? I'll second it, Governor. It's a motion by Justice Hardesty, a second by Justice Gibbons to Restructure the sentence to a five to life, which would make the second se second sentence to five to life, which would allow Mr. Reed to be eligible for for parole in September of 2012. Secretary, will you please call the roll. Justice Paragari. Yes. Justice Hardesty. Yes. Justice Pickering. No. Justice Gibbons. Yes. Justice Cherry? No. Justice Douglas? No. Chief Justice Seda? No. Attorney General Masto? No. Governor Sandoval? No. Motion fails. Next matter on the agenda is Francisco Rivas Bonilla. Are you ready to proceed, Council? I am, thank you. Governor, Madam Attorney General, honorable members of the Supreme Court, my name is Christina Wildeveld, and I'm here today on behalf of Francisco Rivas Bonilla. 
I'd like to introduce his family members who are present here today. I have his father, Francisco Rivas, his mother, Marta, and his 24-year-old uh, brother. 24? 28-year-old brother. Um, he also, Francisco also has a sister who was unable to be here today. She's working and going to school. We have asked for immediate parole eligibility in this case. You can sit down. That's fine. Thank you. Um, and have him be able to be deported for, uh, to go back to El Salvador. But before I start, I'd like to make a comment after sitting here all day, and it is the end of the day. Um, I often ask my colleagues when doing a fast track brief why we need to keep reciting the law. Why do we keep need, need, needing to say Strickland versus Washington is ineffective assistance of counsel, and a writ of bandamus seeks relief for this, that, and the other. I think that question has been answered for me here today, so I'm going to start with why we're here. Uh, Article 5, Section 13 through 15 indicates that the governor may grant a commutation of sentence that, guarantee that, that the grantee serve a lesser penalty for his offense than that imposed upon him by the court in which he was convicted. Throughout history, the power of clemency has been used recognized and appropriate to alleviate the consequences of the crime by giving appropriate mitigating weight to a defendant's youth at the time of the crime, to the circumstances and the weight of the evidence, to account for changed circumstances such as a prisoner's record within the prison, risk assessment, and just plain fairness. That is why we are here today. And that is why we, I guess we recite the law every time we do that fast track brief and take up, when, we, when there's a page limit, take up half a page in reciting what we already know. None of the members of the Supreme Courts are wearing their robes today. This isn't a place for justice. This is a place for mercy. I would submit to all of you that the courts are the place for justice, where the law is followed mandatory minimums are imposed, and sent automatic sentencing enhancements are given. The people who get before this board get before this board for other reasons. We do see the most heinous of crimes. We see murder. We saw a rape case today. We see drug cases in which Massive amounts are drugs, of drugs have been brought into the United States or sold and the havoc they wreak on our community. But the reason this board meets and the honorable group that is gathered here today, including the governor and the attorney general and the Supreme Court, who all don't sit in the same room, is to listen to the mitigating circumstances, to mercy. The only time mercy plays a role in any case is in a death penalty case when we get to do the penalty phase of a hearing. We don't, get, we, don't present, we don't get to present that evidence in every murder case that we try or every rape case that we try. The law is the law. You, you kill somebody, you are facing a mandatory minimum. If it's first degree murder, you face a certain amount of time. This is here because what these people who, are sit, who sit next to me and in this chair have done with themselves since justice was imposed. So while we have to take into account the, many, the victims in the cases and the horrific circumstances uh, that brought the, the inmates to where they are today, 
we have to go beyond that as well. We have to look beyond that and see why they deserve a different treatment today. And so for that reason, um, we have before you today Francisco Rivas Benilla. Back in April of 1999, Francisco was 20 years old. He killed his best friend, Rudy Men Menendez, in the blink of an eye, in a split second. Not only his entire life was changed, naturally Rudy Menendez's life was changed, his family's life was changed, the, uh, Francisco's family's life was changed, and every single person who witnessed it in that room's life was changed. And they were all sentenced to something that day, something that will change their lives forever. But now since that time, uh, Rudy, so Rudy Menendez was killed by Francisco Rivas. They were best friends. They were both from El Salvador. Uh, Francisco came over here legally in 1993 or 1994, 93 on a student visa. His family, uh, his parents had come here eight and a half years earlier. Francisco was left back in El Salvador with his grandparents to be raised by his grandparents and his extended family members who remained in El Salvador. He came over here when he was 14. He met Rudy and he and Rudy were both from El Salvador. There were uh, different groups of boys who would uh, pick fun, make fun of one another based on where they were from. Uh, kind of, you're, you're a Mexican, you're an El Salvadorian, you're from Guatemala. Uh, whatever it is. But he, he and Rudy stuck together because they were both from El Salvador. Um, the other, a lot of the other people were from Mexico. And so there was a little rivalry going on between where the different people were from um, when he was growing up and in his high school, uh, the, the people that were in his high school. From the time he was 15, he was drinking alcohol. I could probably say, and he could probably say, he was a raging alcoholic by the time he was 15. <clears throat> Not only because he liked to drink alcohol, but also because he was born in El Salvador during a civil war. He witnessed death. He witnessed people being killed. They drink more in El Salvador than they do here. It's more customary in El Salvador to drink a lot. He came to the United States. He was sad, he was lonely, he didn't have friends, he met Rudy, and he was drinking a lot. His dad was also an alcoholic. His dad is here today. His dad is sober, as is Francisco. Uh, Fran Francisco graduated from high school. He got married, he had a baby. He was holding two jobs, and during that time he wasn't drinking because he worked for Kmart and Kmart drug tested and he needed to keep his jobs in order to provide for his family. However, he and his wife began to have issues and he saw her on the day of this, of the day in question, with another man named Jose, who is her current husband today. Um, he again started drinking that day. So it had been a month that he hadn't consumed alcohol because he needed to keep his two jobs and he was being drug tested. And then he consumed alcohol. He consumed a lot of it. He went on a binge. Um, that afternoon, he and Rudy bought a gun. They bought it together. They bought it with the intention of reselling it and making more money from it.
They didn't buy it to use. They didn't buy it to commit crimes with, although he is admittedly, he was admittedly an El Salvadorian gang member. <coughs> uh, they went out that night. They partied. They were in an apartment with a whole other group of persons. Rudy introduced his girlfriend who was there. The girlfriend happened to be <coughs> Mexican. And she had made fun of Rudy before. I think the woman worked at McDonald's for being from El Salvador. Not made fun of, but lack, for lack of a better term. She had noted that he was from El Salvador and made comments about it in the past, which made him angry. And it was an ongoing thing, apparently, between the races. Um, Rudy, at that moment, I'm sorry, uh, Francisco, at that moment, realized that he had known this woman from before, from when he was with his wife in McDonald's, and she was poking fun at the fact that they were El Salvadorian. He got in an argument with her, and in the blink of an eye, he grabbed a gun, that gun that they had bought earlier, lifted it up, and shot her, and went to shoot at her. Instead, he shot and killed Rudy. And everything changed from that moment on. I could just liken this to a, to a murder, another murder case. But it's not, because there are facts surrounding everything. And that's why I think it's important that we take into account the fact that he's from El Salvador. There's a cultural difference. He grew up around violence. He was an alcoholic. He was trying to do the right thing. He was sober for a while. This day, he began drinking again, and he consumed a lot. He, he was arrested. The next day, the state filed a notice of intent to seek the death penalty. So this was an immediate death case. This happened April 4th, 1999. By April 5th, 1999, a death notice was presented. By March of 2000, so less than one year later, they had already gone to a jury trial. And Rudy was found, I'm sorry, Francisco was found guilty of second-degree murder. Being a trial attorney and doing first-degree murder cases, and many of you of your honors have had the opportunity to sit before murder cases, I find it stunning the questions that were presented to the jury. I'm sorry, the questions that the jury had. The jury presented questions to the court such as, can we convict him of voluntary manslaughter if he's not charged with it? Does a weapon preclude finding him guilty of involuntary manslaughter? When, involunt when, involuntar when involuntary killing occurs while aiming a gun, is that still murder? If the gun was fired, can it still be an accident? How big were the bottles of vodka that were consumed? As a trial attorney, in, an, in, a, in a case which began as a death penalty case, and to have those kind of questions presented shows that there was other things going on, and the jury didn't find that this was a first-degree murder case. They came back with a second-degree murder charge. Did they found Ms. that I'm sorry. Justice Gibbons. Uh, Ms. Wilde, did he request a voluntary manslaughter instruction from the court? I am not sure, Your Honor. I was not the trial counsel at this time. This is a Washoe County case. Um, and I don't know the answer to that question. Like so many other cases that happened so long ago, I don't have the full record um, from Francisco Rivas Benito's case. I got it from his, I received what I could from his attorney up here in Reno, and it was about this much. 
Um, so it was a very thin file to begin with. And I had to work from, extrapolate from what I had and the previous writs that I was able to get. And she had attached the jury questions to the writs. So I also believe I attached the jury questions in there that were printed out um, to my petition on, behalf of, on his behalf. At any rate, he is Why serving. Why do you think we should retry the case, though? I mean, that, you just, um, you're asking us like to I, retry it. I don't want to retry the I case. I understand that. What we're really interested in is what has he done in the 12 years that would give him some type of relief and, now, and let him go back to El Salvador? Thank you. And now I, I will let you know that. During the uh, last 12 years that he's been in prison, um, he has taken advantage of all the courses. And for, at, at, at that end, I attached all of the certificates that he's earned while in prison. So I won't go over those again. You all have the packets before you under tab three. Um, what isn't mentioned uh, that I will let Francisco extrapolate more on, but that he has been involved in AA as much as he can be. He is not a citizen, so he was not able to go into the o OASIS program. They do not have weekly AA meetings in the prison that he's in. He has held his own AA meetings with a group of guys in the prison. He has translated uh, Spanish or English books into Spanish. He has taught Spanish. He has taught English to non-English speakers. And I might also mention, when Francisco came to the United States, he didn't speak a word of English when he was 15 years old. He was in ESL classes and learned English himself. Since being in prison, he's gone on and done more than that. He's learned Braille. And if I may approach, Governor, I'd like the members to see the book that he has translated. May I approach? You may. Thank you. And leaving for the court consideration a manuscript that Mr. Rivas-Sinia translated um, from English, and I've attached the English version, which is called Lucy, into Braille. He wrote entire manuscripts in Braille. This guy who is an El Salvadorian gang member knows Braille, can translate books into Braille. And I just find that, I find that a, a huge comment on the prison system. That is a huge benefit that he received. Um, and then in addition, he has translated numerous uh, drug and alcohol books into, from English into Spanish, and he's teaching other members of the prison system English. He is also a very talented artist. And I have with me, these are photographs of pictures that he has drawn. These are penned, they are hand done, these. And I would also ask the court to look at these. If you look at the picture of this, you'd see that this man is his father. He drew his father as if it were a photograph. He did that with his own hand. And so many others. He does have a son, the son that I mentioned earlier. He's now 12 years old, 13, 13 years old. Um, his ex-wife is married to Jose, the man that I had mentioned earlier that he had saw her with on that day. Um, they are raising his son. He does have contact with his son. However, he has... Um, he is resolved to go back to El Salvador. And so, to get right to the point here, he has accepted responsibility. He has sought to become a better person in prison and to address all of his issues in prison. He has been incarcerated for 12 years. He was 20 years old when he, began this, when he committed this crime. 
He had a lack of violence prior to being incarcerated. He was self-destructive. He had DUIs, but he didn't have violence towards others. And you can correct me, of course, if I'm wrong, but to my recollection, didn't have a large viol any violence in his history. Uh, there's no risk of him to return to the United States. He entered the United States legally. His family owns 13 acres back in El Salvador. His grandmother, who raised him for the eight and a half years of his parents' absence, the most formative years of his life, she's still in El Salvador. His aunts and uncles are in El Salvador. He has a job waiting for him in El Salvador, and his family has saved up money for him to go back to El Salvador with in order to start a business. Um, his discipline her disciplinary her uh, history is excellent. Uh, he's addri addressing his addiction. He's going to AA and NA as often as he can. And when he is out, he will continue addressing his addiction. He realizes he is an alcoholic. He had limitations that he's overcome. He's learned English. He's taught English. He's learned Braille. His next parole eligibility isn't until 2021. And we would ask the board to canvass him and he will agree to waive any de deportation hearing and be deported. If he returns, if, he's if he returns, he will return to a life sentence. He has a life tail hanging over him. Yeah. The questions are, has he served enough time? That question has been asked over and over again today. Is there ever a time when he served enough time? Is he a risk to society? I'd submit that the only person he was a risk to was himself until he got a hold of that gun and he had the combination of alcohol and the gun together. He is remorseful, he is rehabilitated, and I would ask that your honors would now have the opportunity to listen to Francisco. I just want to thank you for allowing me to be here today, first of all. And I would like to say that I did have a problem with alcohol. I used to drink a lot. There was a time when I used to drink like six days out of, the, out of the week until I got drunk. Most of the times, I don't even recall how, how I got home. My Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.